I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Defund the police. It's become the rallying cry for protesters across the country, demanding radical change in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. But what exactly does that slogan mean? And how far should funding cuts go? And if it means fewer cops on the streets, who will keep the peace in neighborhoods still beset by violent crime? Amid striking new poll numbers showing that American attitudes toward race, the protests, and abuses by police have changed dramatically in just the last few weeks, we'll talk to Alex Vitale, the sociologist whose book, The End of Policing, has become a roadmap for the defund the police movement. And we'll dissect those new poll numbers about the protests with Yahoo News political and polling guru Andrew Romano on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So when I look at these new polling numbers about how much American attitudes are changing, it's a reminder of the power of imagery. The video of George Floyd and that police officer's knee on his neck has really struck a nerve. And it's hard to think of a moment when there's been such a dramatic shift in American attitudes. Yeah, I don't know about whether um, maybe Romano will know this, but whether there have been shifts in American attitudes that are this dramatic. I do know that there is a for a long time in our history, imagery, most of the in our you know, modern American history, it's been the television has often had a dramatic impact on American attitudes. All you have to think of is Bull Connor's dogs during the civil rights era and the Vietnam War brought into the living rooms of Americans and the impact that that had over time. You know, in this particular case, I think we're going to see very considerable polling shifts in a very short period of time, you know, in a, in a week or two on one of the perennially tragic issues in our history, which is race. But I think we should just bring Romano in to talk about the results of our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll. Andrew, you with us? Hey. Okay. So uh, pretty striking numbers in this new Yahoo News YouGov poll. Tell us about what you found. Yeah, I think it has to be one of the most rapid shifts in racial attitudes in U.S. history. I mean, we'll say recent U.S. history to be safe, but it's hard to think of another time when views on a as entrenched and difficult an issue as race have changed this quickly. And one indicator of that is views of Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement that sort of, sort of just provided the the engine and the ideas behind the protests that have gripped the nation. 
In 2016, just a quarter of Americans told the pollster that we work with, YouGov, that they approved of Black Lives Matter. Today, 57% say they have a favorable view, so more than double. That is just remarkable. A similar majority, 56%, say they've become more concerned about racial injustice in the U.S. in just the last two weeks since the protests began. And so you're seeing numbers in this poll usually up around 60% of Americans saying things like racism is built into American society, the assumption of white superiority pervades schools, businesses, housing, and government, 60% saying the police have a problem with systemic racism, even more, 63% saying America has a problem with it, more than 60% of respondents saying that many or most Americans are racist, 69% saying race was a factor in George Floyd's killing, 54% saying it was a major factor. The list goes on. 60% say that the deaths of African-Americans during encounters with the police are signs of a broader problem as opposed to isolated incidents. And 63% say cops don't treat black and white people equally. So it's just across the board, these wide, wide majorities and some of these, you know, very difficult questions that, you know, back in, say, 2013, when Black Lives Matter began, that most Americans tended to disagree with. So a lot has changed. Andrew, I was also struck by the change in attitudes towards uh, Colin Kaepernick, you know, the San Francisco 49ers quarterback who famously took a knee during the national anthem. You report that in 2016, just 28% of Americans considered Kaepernick's conduct appropriate. Now, 52%, a majority, say it's okay for NFL players to kneel during the national anthem to protest police killings. I think that that's incredibly revealing. I I haven't seen another poll where a majority approved of that protest, that form of protest. And I think it's probably just sort of tipped into a majority over the last week or so. I think, you know, that's been one of the most controversial cultural issues in sort of recent U.S. history. It's obviously something that President Trump has tweeted a lot about, riled up his supporters about, that's been all over Fox News. Um, and to see a majority of Americans supporting that form of protest, I think, is really a sign of that. Uh, assuming that we have an NFL season in the fall, I think a lot of people are going to be looking to see how NFL players uh, handle it when the national anthem is played. And I would not be surprised if we see a lot of them taking that knee. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I do think that that that'll be sort of a it'll be a telling sign of where we are as a country. One other thing I wanted to bring up that is a big change. And we were talking about the 60s and sort of the long arc of history here. I think it's really interesting how these these numbers sort of reflect back and affect views of Trump. You know, one question we asked, and I thought this was a really interesting question, is sort of which approach as a better way to regain composure in America. We had three quarters of respondents say that the country was out of control, yet only 36% said that law and order would be the sort of right way to approach this and get control back in the United States. The remaining 64% preferred bringing people together. I bet those numbers would have been different in 1968. And uh, our president tweeted uh, law and order in all caps once again uh, this morning, Thursday morning, as we record this podcast. And he's also got law and order pinned to the top of his Twitter profile. So 
You know, this is, I think we're seeing, and it's reflected in our poll also, but we're seeing almost a plummeting of Trump's poll numbers vis-a-vis Biden, also in terms of his approval numbers or disapproval numbers. You know, it has to be, I think, the kind of double effect here of both coronavirus and these protests, and I guess also the economic toll as well from uh, the pandemic. But I want to ask you, Andrew, just from a polling perspective, Yes, we are seeing a dramatic shift in attitudes about race, about the police, about all of these issues. But what is your sense? Is there any way, based on past polls in moments like this, of whether this is a temporary effect, a kind of a blip based on the imagery that Isakoff was talking about, the headlines, the fact that we are having this kind of national conversation in this moment. Would you expect to see uh, numbers like this sustained, or could you imagine them fading quickly? How do you see that in, in the context of the kind of polling that you've looked at, looked at over time? Yeah, I've seen people make a, you know sort of two comparisons to this moment. One is on an issue like guns, and one is on an issue like gay marriage. So what we see in polling around guns is that when there's a particularly you know sort of tragic mass shooting, the polling numbers move, and then they kind of revert back somewhat, at least, to the the norm on gun control. What we see on something like gay marriage, however, is you know a sort of steady shift towards more equality. And so people who've looked at the the sort of arc of polling over time think this may be more of the latter. That is, Americans tend to move towards greater equality over time and that this might be, you know, a particularly big jump in the numbers, but that they keep heading in the direction of addressing and trying to fix racial injustice. So I would be surprised if we saw it kind of revert back to the old norm the way the way we do with something like that. Now, while there's a kind of a paradigm shift here in terms of attitudes about race and racism in American society and in American institutions, it is not translating to the sort of policy prescriptions of the protesters. This is going to be the conversation that we have with our next guest, Alex Vitale, about the defund the police movement and the more radical prescription, which is abolishing police as we know it. So talk about what the poll shows in terms of how far the American people are willing to go or not go in terms of those kinds of solutions to what is uh, perceived to be a policing problem in the country right now. Yeah. So, you know, obviously defund the police in quotation marks has become kind of the rallying cry and the major demand of these protests. It's been something that's been pushed for in activist circles for some time. But, you know, the American people probably weren't even aware that it was a thing until about 12 days ago. So we were the first, I think the first poll to ask about cutting funding for police departments and whether people approved or disapproved of this. This was on May 29th and 30th, kind of at the height of the early chaotic protests. We got remarkably low numbers of approval for that. I believe it was 16% overall approved cutting funding for police departments. We found in this poll, we asked again to sort of gauge how it's changed over the last 10 days or so, only 25% of the public favor cutting funding for police departments. That's much less than the 53% who oppose cuts. If you put it in just, if you just say defund the police or cut police departments, it is not a popular policy. 
59% of Americans, we kind of tested sort of various views. Which of these do you agree more with more closely represents your view? 59% agree that, quote, police departments have a problem with race, but the problem can be fixed by reforming the existing system. Just 24%, again, about a quarter, say that police reform hasn't worked and that we need to defund the police and reinvent our approach to public safety. We also asked, do you think we need more or uh, less cops on the street? 64% of Americans insisted that we need more cops on the street, not less. And Black Americans were evenly divided on the issue. They were the most inclined to say less cops, but even then, 50-50 on that issue. And one of the things I was interested in was, is, is this a question of just how much people know, that they just hear defund the police and they reject that because they think it means doing away with the police or giving police no money, that there will be no one on the other end of the line when you call 911. So we asked in sort of two kind of like less extreme ways where we explained what activists are actually calling for. And one of those ways was, would you support spending less money on police in order to invest more money in a community's education, housing, and healthcare programs? Even then, a plurality were still opposed to that. And then we gave the sort of most generous explanation, which was, do you support gradually redirecting police funding towards an increasing number of social workers, drug counselors, and mental health experts responsible for responding to nonviolent emergencies? And that's a key tenant of most defunding proposals. And that got a plurality support, but it was 49%. It wasn't even more than half. So I think yeah. no matter how you put it, this is not a policy with a huge groundswell of public support behind it. So, Andrew, this strikes me as a dichotomy here, because while we have broad and growing public support for the protests in general, the specific demands that the protesters are putting forth are not supported by the American people. And so when you take a look at what's going on in Seattle right now, where uh, the protesters have set up their own autonomous zone, demanding that the mayor take drastic action to defund the Seattle Police Department, it is not something that seems to resonate with the people who have been polled here. So I wonder if that we were talking a moment ago is, is this going to last or is, you know, could attitudes change back again? And I'm wondering if that dichotomy between the support for the protests in general and the lack of support for what they're demanding may lead to some change in these numbers over time. Yeah, I'm really, I think that's really interesting. There were some other questions in the poll that maybe got at this. We asked a couple different ways, you know, do you uh, support protests even when they become violent? And I think there was something like three quarters of Americans saying that would, that would be going too far. We asked, should the protesters keep protesting or stop protesting at this point? And I think it was almost evenly divide, divided, something like 42 to 44% on that question. Um, so I think that there is there are ways that the protests can go too far. I will say politically, I'm not, you know, given that we have a Republican Party and a Democratic Party, I'm not sure that that is a bad thing for Democrats. It puts them in a slightly complicated position because they have to, you know, a lot of these protesters are sort of in the Democratic tent and they need to address these concerns. But, you know, if you were to say which approach to addressing these issues do you support, the one that would gain by far the most favor in the poll is pretty much exactly what Democrats are proposing to do, which is 
pretty large scale reforms to the policing system to address systemic racism here in the United States. I mean, we yeah. tested almost everything in the Democratic bill in this poll and it gets, you know, they get 70, 80 percent support, you know, things like police have to wear body cameras and so on. So the Democratic official Democratic Party position is very popular at this point. Yeah. And and, and Biden was was actually fairly nimble about this for a campaign um, that has not been all that nimble throughout this uh, period. He came out quickly and said that he does not support defunding the police, but he does support, you know, reform. And so he's obviously in the mainstream of uh, where the Democratic Party is. I'm sure he supports the Democratic proposal that the House has just uh, put out. I think it's fair to say that none of these numbers uh, look good for President Trump and that law and order mantra he's going to on Twitter seems to be coming across as increasingly hollow. So, Andrew, I want to thank you for this. Uh, we have a, um, a good guest to talk about this defund the police movement, Andrew Vitale. And let's explore and get on with the show. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are now joined by Alex Vitale, the author of the book, The End of Policing, a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. So quite a lot of attention these days on what we do about police departments across the country in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. And you've written quite a provocative book that's getting a lot of attention that calls for essentially the dismantling of police departments across the country. And I want to get I want to give you this chance to sort of tell us what you mean when you say the end of policing. What are we talking about? We're talking about dialing back really a toxic politics that has dominated both parties over the last 40 years, which says that all government can do is to subsidize the already most successful parts of the economy in hopes that some of that will magically trickle down to the rest of us. And in the process, it's created mass homelessness, mass problems of untreated mental illness, opioid overdoses through the roof, failing schools. And then they've turned all of those problems over to the police to manage. And so the book is really a roadmap for dismantling our over-reliance on policing. And it's a, it's a demand for political reform that our politicians be held accountable for using the police on the already most vulnerable communities in our society instead of actually fixing their problems. Alex, uh, before we get into the, uh, the substance of um, your proposals and what the specific problems are now beyond what you just said. I want to ask you two, two quick questions. And one of them is, is really about how we got here, the roots of 
the kinds of policing um, that you're identifying. Uh, but before that, just very quickly, you know, a lot of people have been shocked by the violent tactics of some police in controlling these protests, the militarized response, the knockdown of that 75-year-old activist in Buffalo, the targeting of reporters. What have you seen in the police's conduct over the last couple of weeks that sheds light on the problems of policing in America? Well, first of all, they're, they're making our point for us. I, I don't know if you guys covered Ferguson, but I certainly watched those protests and the way the police handled them. And then I've watched what's happened this past week and a half, and I don't see any police reform. I don't see any changes to the violence in policing. I don't see any effort to create police community partnerships. You know, when push comes to shove, the police are showing us their true colors. They are violence workers who are often not really interested in the well-being of huge parts of the population, and that we need to get them out of our lives in every way we can figure out how to do so. Who's the them? Well, it depends on what we're talking about. But you just said them, and I, you know, and you said it in a way that would suggest all police officers or most police officers. But who do you have in mind when you say them? Okay, sorry. First, it's not about good apples and bad apples. This is not about sorting out who the good police officers are and the bad police officers are, because I, I think a lot of that is irrelevant and a distraction, right? It's also not about demonizing police officers as individuals. I've been a police scholar for over 20 years. I work with police all over the world. Police call me all the time. I get emails from them. I ride around in the back of patrol cars as I travel around the world. Most people go into policing because they think they're trying to help. The problem is, is that that job doesn't allow them to provide the kind of help that they think they can provide, right? It relies on the tools of criminalization to try to imagine that they're protecting everyone from the bad guys. This is about a failure to understand the limits of policing in producing safer and more just communities. That's what this is really about, that policing is not the only way to produce public safety or to produce justice. I want to ask you just uh, quickly about how we got here. And we do a lot of history on this podcast because we think it informs the present and, and the future. And there's a, a line in your book where you say that the thin blue line is between haves and have-nots. You know, normally, we, people talk about the thin blue line being, being between uh, civilization and, and chaos. But you have a kind of an economic interpretation of what policing has been about in this country and also that it's always been highly racialized. So we don't have time to do the whole history, but very quickly, give us your theory of how the police have evolved and what their role in society has become based on that history. You know, policing is a fairly modern invention. For the most part, it's less than 200 years old, about 150 years in most places in the US and Europe. And it gets created in that 19th century to manage regimes of exploitation around colonialism, slavery, and the management of a new urban industrial working class. And it, it was not about producing safer and more just communities. That, that may have been a byproduct for those who, who benefit from those systems, but really policing is, is rooted in the maintenance of inequality regardless of the attitudes or desires of individual officers. And today we don't have slavery or colonialism. We barely have industrialization in the US, right? 
what we have is mass homelessness and mass mental illness and mass involvement in black markets because of people's economic precarity. And that's what police do all day is they manage that population of people. They go into the most vulnerable communities to try to micromanage those people with the tools of arrests and handguns and ticket books. So I, I just want to come back a little bit to exactly what you are proposing here, because you spend a lot of time in your book debunking you know, the liberal reforms that uh, Democrats are now pushing for, that a lot of critics of police departments are pushing for, wearing body cameras, abolishing chokeholds, uh, more accountability. You say these don't matter. They are pointless. So what exactly do you want to see in major police departments right now? What are we talking about? Yeah, these reforms, implicit bias training and police community meetings, and even some of the accountability stuff, it's just not working. So what do we do instead? We have to look to what this defund movement really is. It was already occurring, kind of percolating under the radar in dozens of cities across the U.S. where people were lining up to go to budget committee hearings, were lobbying city council members demanding that they shift dollars from policing and jails into community-identified, targeted interventions that are tailored to address specific public safety concerns that those communities have. So in, so in, in St. Louis, where we have Close the Workhouse, is an amazing campaign that wants to close a jail and put that money into community-based anti-violence projects, youth programs, homelessness and mental health services. So this is about municipal politics in its most pure form. But what about the police departments, the people who patrol the streets, who you call when you've been mugged or robbed or shot at? What are you proposing should happen to the police officers on the streets? I think we got to find that magic switch in Washington that we can just turn off and then poof, there are no police, right? That, that switch doesn't exist. There's no city council in the United States that's going to create a $0 budget for the police this year in the budget cycle, right? That, that this is like a diversion from going from you know zero to a thousand and ignoring all the steps in between. This is about evidence-based strategies for dialing back our reliance on policing. And where that process ends depends on where the evidence leads us. We've got to start picking off as much as we can of what police do and replacing it with better alternatives. And that includes things like youth violence and domestic violence and sexual assaults. We have evidence-based strategies to replace so much of what police do. But it's not going to happen overnight. We have to build up the community infrastructures. We have to win broader popular support for these ideas. But we can start with establishing a logic about getting police out of the schools and putting more counselors in or getting police out of the mental health business. You know, L.A. County, New York City have fully developed plans under discussion about completely getting the police out of the mental health business. It would save huge amounts of money and lives. 
But Alex, why not, if it is going to take a lot of time to build that infrastructure that is needed, the social services, uh, you know, a mental health system, housing, better education, all of those things, why not, while we're trying to get to that promised land, why don't we institute a lot more of these reforms? And I wanted to, I want to talk specifically about some of the ones that have been proposed, but it is also, you know, I, I think the case that since 2015, when the Black Lives Matter activism started to rise up and some of these reforms began to be instituted, that the numbers actually have come down somewhat in terms of the killings of unarmed black men in particular. Not a lot, but the Washington Post, I think, reported that since then it's come down by about 10 percent. Is that not in any way attributable to some of the reforms that have been instituted? So in other words, why is it an either or proposition? So it does require that we get into the weeds a little bit, right? And that we sort out the difference between a whole set of really superficial procedural reforms like implicit bias training and mindfulness training and police community partnership meetings. These are interventions that are designed at root to get the community to restore its trust in the police, to reestablish the legitimacy of relying on police to solve our problems. There's also a set of reforms, some of which are included in the eight can't wait program that are essentially harm reduction interventions. They're efforts to dial back the power of police by limiting their ability to use force. And it is possible that some of those interventions could make some difference. I don't disagree with that. There is some evidence to show that, but it's marginal. We've had yeah. six years of a national crisis and we've gotten maybe a 10% reduction that may be the result of a whole set of factors. That, to me, is not very encouraging. Here's one that I think is interesting, which is in the eight can't wait set of proposals. And it is, and I think maybe the Democrats in their plan may, may get at this as well, but I'm not sure. But it is called the duty to intervene. And it is the idea that if a police officer is abusing his uh, or her power and doing something really inappropriate, that the police officers around them have a duty to intervene and stop them. And if that had happened in the George Floyd case, presumably George Floyd would still be with us. But I think that's an interesting idea because it gets at this idea of the culture of loyalty inside the police. And you talk a lot about the need to change the culture in the police. So why wouldn't that work? So I don't, I'm not actually trying to change the culture of policing. I'm not sure it's possible. And the thing is, they had such a duty in Minneapolis on the books. Those officers who stood around had received specific training that demanded that they intervene and they did nothing. And even more so, that demand is superfluous because existing regulations already require that police intervene to save people's lives. They have sanctity of life requirements and low level use of force requirements. And this is routinely ignored and never enforced. There are never any consequences for these officers. And even when there are in those rare cases, it does not appear to feed back into the behavior of policing in an ongoing way. It just doesn't work. As you know, the majority of victims of homicides in this country year after year are people of color. In Chicago, which has had the worst epidemic of murders uh, over the last uh, decade, 93 percent 
of the victims of murders in Chicago in 2018 were people of color, 80% African-American, 13% Hispanic. And I want to read you something from an article in the Chicago Sun-Times just a couple of days ago. While Chicago was roiled by another day of protests and looting in the wake of George Floyd's murder, 18 people were killed Sunday, May 31, making it the single most violent day in Chicago in six decades. For that weekend, 25 people were killed with another 85 wounded by gunfire, making it the most, it may have been the most violent weekend in Chicago history. And then the article goes on to quote Reverend Michael Flager, a longtime crusader against gun violence, said it was open season last weekend in his neighborhood and others in the south and west sides of Chicago, quote, on Saturday and particularly Sunday. I heard people saying all over, hey, there's no police anywhere. Police ain't doing nothing. I sat and watched a store looted for over an hour. No police came. I got in my car, drove around to some other places, didn't see police anywhere. What would you say to the Reverend Flager? Well, I would say that policing, even when they are filling the neighborhoods, has not solved the violence problem in Chicago. And also that this problem is not going to be solved overnight. We have to create new infrastructures. And I would ask that reverend, has he also asked for new community centers for young people in his community? Has he also embraced putting in more cure violence programs to deal with with youth violence? He is a longtime crusader for uh, against gun violence, right? My guess is that he has. And where are those resources? See, these communities have been told for, for 40 plus years now that the only tool they can have to address problems like youth violence is more police. And so, of course, if the choice is police or nothing, a lot of people are going to choose police. And the whole point of this is to put other options on the table. I mean, these killings are appalling, but in New York, we've had high quality research about the ability of these cure violence sites to reduce homicides and shootings dramatically. And in Chicago, they have cut those programs. So Alex, just uh, in, in very practical terms so that people can understand what we would be replacing traditional policing with. Clearly, there are going to be a lot of times when you can have mental health professionals respond to, to certain kinds of calls or, you know, if there's an issue with a homeless person, you can have someone who's got that kind of expertise. But when would it be appropriate for the response to be, you know, a police officer or some kind of public safety officer you know, with a uniform, a badge, and a weapon. Um, ever are there, would there, do you envision circumstances in which that kind of policing would still be necessary? It's quite possible. I mean, we don't know what the end of this process is going to look like, but states are going to always need some kind of capacity to mobilize violence. But it should be understood as the tool of absolute last resort. But instead, we've made it the tool of first resort to address every problem under the sun. Right. I actually have a, this is admittedly a, a political question or a question about public persuasion, but you have a, a set of policy ideas here that you clearly hope becomes a reality. And, and that is about the kind of framing of this issue, the slogans, defund the police, abolish the police. The title of your book, 
the end of policing. I wonder, you know, for a lot of people today, maybe the vast majority of Americans, th- those slogans are kind of conversation enders. And how do you think about, other than doing podcasts like this one, how do you think about getting the message out to the American people, the nuances that you're talking about, the fact that this is not something that happens overnight, that this can be done while at the same time continuing to protect the safety of people? Are you at all concerned that in the atmosphere of these protests, that that message is is being simplified? Look, public messaging is tricky here. I've spent the last three years crisscrossing the country. I've been on a plane every other week for three years before COVID happened, being invited by communities trying to figure this out. So there is a hunger. There's a hunger out there for a new way to move forward. And my publisher informed me that there have been 200,000 downloads of my ebook in the last two weeks. So people are trying to figure this out, and I'm doing 10, 12 interviews a day everywhere I can find a chance to do it to get this message out. And so are dozens of other people in this movement all across the country. Yes, defund the police is not the whole story. It is confusing to some people, but it's hard to put this full analysis down on a cardboard sign. It's hard to reduce it to a hashtag. We need that opportunity to explain it to people. And most importantly, in communities that have public safety challenges, we have an obligation to work with them to convince them that we have credible alternatives. So this is not gonna be fixed at the top with some kind of technocratic intervention. This is about taking the community organizing to a new level. Your book talks a lot about the evolution of policing over the years, and one that really did um, hit home for me is your discussion of the 1033 program. Tell us what that is and what it's meant for police departments. Yeah, so in, in the late 90s, under the Clinton administration, they decided to enable the direct transfer of surplus military equipment to local police departments. And massive amounts of equipment has been transferred. And in addition, especially after 9-11, there was a massive increase in grants to allow the direct purchase of military-grade equipment. So this has flooded cities, big and small, with Humvees and Bearcats and sniper rifles and all this tear gas that we see all across the country. And I think this is a terrible development. It is expanding police power, it is expanding police violence, and it's being used at the moment to suppress lawful protest. So uh, there is language in the new congressional bill from the Democrats to radically pare back 1033 and to create more accountability for the use of that stuff. And it's certainly a step in the right direction. I was just going to say, I saw the real life impact of that. I remember when I was um, covering the uh, Boston Marathon bombing and remembering one day vividly, a couple days later, when just saw down the street, just row after row of armored personnel carriers and officers with assault rifles, all at that point looking for one guy uh, that who was still alive and was responsible for the bombing. But it was a pretty scary sight to see. And I think uh, your discussion of that hit home for me. But I want to ask you one other aspect of this, the impact of the 1994 crime bill that was shepherded by then-Senator Joe Biden. 
Yeah, so I, I don't want to overstate the importance of that one bill because, you, as you know, policing is a local matter primarily, and it was local prosecutors and local uh, state legislatures that played the predominant role in driving things like mass incarceration. But the 94 crime bill has been horrible. It has been part of this process of turning over everything to police to manage and subsidizing this process at the local level. So it was responsible for creating more police in schools, for intensifying the war on drugs, for turning the problems of communal violence over to the criminal justice system to manage exclusively. It actually diverted resources from community-based strategies. So this is a real problem. And there, there's actually a national movement, the People's Coalition for Safety and Freedom, that's doing organizing around the country to try to articulate what an alternative to the 94 crime bill would be for the next Congress. So I'd like to go a little bit further back in history to discuss another, I think, key inflection point, and that's the 1968 presidential campaign, which we've talked a lot about on this uh, podcast recently. And uh, to set it up and the impact that uh, that had on all of the issues that we're talking about now, I want to read a passage from your book, which I think a lot of our listeners will find astonishing. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. Now, this is this is Ehrlichman, who was the chief of staff, deputy chief of staff for domestic policy. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but getting the public to associate the hipsters with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So talk about that period and the Nixon uh, Southern strategy and how that led to where we are today. Yeah, that's usually where I begin this conversation about this over-reliance on policing, this expansion of the scope of policing. And it is about using the police to advance a political project that had nothing to do with public health or public safety, right? The war on drugs was part of the Southern strategy of trying to win over traditionally Democratic white Southern voters and some suburban voters in the North over to the Republican Party in the wake of the civil rights movement. And Nixon knew that law and order was normally a state issue, but he said, you know, drugs cross international borders and state lines often, and we have these international treaties so we can get into the drug business. And we can use that to signal to whites that if they want to try to restore racial animus and racial inequality in the United States, we're the party for them. That the Democrats passed the Civil Rights Acts, they have abandoned you, but you can find racism at home with us. This is the political problem we're up against. Just to um, wrap up here, uh, you talked about all the downloads of your book and all the attention it's getting. But look, this is a active and live debate. It's going on in Congress. The Democrats have just introduced their response to the George Floyd killing and their proposals. You know, city councils are, are 
debating measures across the country. Uh, are you taking an active role in this debate beyond doing podcasts? Are you testifying? Do you plan to um, be out in some of the communities that are grappling with these? Um, tell us what Advi- your own adv- role advising is. Yeah. Po- advising police departments who are, who are, who are or city councils who may be yeah. pushing for this. Yeah, Not police departments. You know, I didn't write the book for police. The police did not create the war on drugs, right? This is a political problem. So my inbox is filled, filled with emails from elected officials around the country who are looking to how to respond to this. And I'm, you know, part of a network of people. I'm not the only person with this analysis. You know, I'm, in, I'm embedded in a community of people who are trying to sort this out. And we're we're in touch with each other on a regular basis. And yes, uh, mayors, city council members, district attorneys, controllers have all reached out to me. And over the next few weeks, I hope to get back to as many of them as I can to start figuring out how, how we do this. And at the same time, I'm also, you know, because I've spent the last three years traveling the country, I have connections with these groups all over the country and I advise them and I'm I have, you know, a phone call with Patrice Cullors coming up and, and you know, I'm trying to directly assist this movement in any way I can. Well, since there isn't a magic switch to flip and uh, this is going to take some time, you'll have the opportunity to, to speak to, to a lot of other people. And, and we hope uh, you'll come back and talk to our audience on Skullduggery. Thanks for joining us. You bet. I, I really appreciate getting to the, to the heart of this matter and, and exploring some tough issues with you guys. And the book is called The End of Policing. Thanks to Yahoo News national correspondent Andrew Romano and sociology professor at Brooklyn College and author Alex Vitale for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.